All right, we are in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, 10 to 17. The title is of today's message is You Are Called to Unity. Um, the mo- this morning, <clears throat> at the beginning of this message, we're going to pretend that we are like anthropologists, all right? Or for you missionary Christian folk, uh, you can think of it as being missionaries beginning to live in a foreign uh, culture and trying to learn about culture, okay? We're students of humanity or of people. Well, you're sitting there one day uh, in one of the outdoor amphitheaters in Corinth. You uh, heard that a traveling speaker was coming to town, and you wanted to hear him. Uh, In walks this bigger-than-life dude. He gets up and begins to tell his story. It sounds a bit far-fetched, but he must be telling the truth or he wouldn't be allowed up on stage, and so you listen intently. And he begins pretty normal. He begins to build in speed, though, and, and in volume, and, and he tells jokes, he critiques the society, he questions the politicians, he gets very animated, uh, dashing this way and that, jumping up and down, uh, raising uh, his hands, he's pointing, slapping his knees, he's clapping, he's, he's just plain getting all worked up, right? And it's all very entertaining. You are amused. And at the end of the performance, because that is what it is or was, you sit and wonder as the crowd rushes to him, throwing money and vowing to follow him. And you wonder, what in the world just happened? Who, Who was this guy? What did he actually say? You had fun, but is that what this is all about? Uh, In Corinthian society, there was a group called the Sophists, and the Sophists were a collection of public speakers or performers uh, who traveled around trying to gather crowds uh, so that they could entertain them, get paid, and build up a following. Uh, The Sophists believed that man was the measure of all things, not God, but but man. And so they were preoccupied with self, kind of the self-entertainers of our day. They, they professed to speak truth, but they were really only interested in winning arguments, gathering crowds, getting people to think like them. They believed that they defined truth, not God. Uh, for them, charisma mattered more than content. Uh, sound familiar? Uh, we live in a society of sophists today. Uh, one commentator I was reading compared the sophists to our postmodern mentality uh, today. For the sophists, they thought truth did not need to be rationally demonstrable, just convictionally persuasive. So you don't have to prove truth, you just have to be persuasive enough to get people on your side. So today, like then, charisma matters more than content. I mean, truth doesn't need to be factual, right? Just fun, right? So many people believe that truth is what they make it out to be. They don't have to demonstrate that truth is rational and universal. They just have to convince people that they are right and their cause is right. And the motto for today is, if I think it's true, then it is. And who's going to contradict me on that? My truth is my truth. Your truth is your truth. The point is not to actually speak truth. It's to speak more eloquently than my opponent win arguments, gather big crowds, get them all worked up over nothing so as I get people to follow me. That's our day and age. So keep those sophists in the back of your mind. We're going to come back to them a little bit later in the message. Another cultural concept tied into and fueling the crazy culture of the sophists and and of Corinth was the fact that Corinth was an honor-shame culture. Honor-shame cultures uh, view public recognition and persona as the most important thing. 
even more important than a person's character. Uh, in honor, shame cultures, one's public image is the basis of their self-worth. If a person's public image is tarnished, it's almost worse than death for them. People will go to any length to protect their public image. Ironically, though, moral character has little to do with one's public image. It's all about what people perceive about you or me, right? What you let them or force them to see. And one commentator said, Corinth was a city where public boasting and self-promotion had become an art form. You see where that's kind of coinciding with today's society? Sound a little familiar, right? Uh, our, somehow our American culture has quickly become an honor-shame culture where public image, our profile, our homepage, our persona is more important than just about anything else. We'll sacrifice relationships for public image. We will sacrifice morals and ethics and virtues just to increase our following, boost our public image, and promote ourselves. People can easily virtue signal on any topic without having an ounce of virtue in them. <clears throat> and this is our cultural context, much like Corinth. It was the cultural context that the Corinthian church found themselves in only without the internet. So, you know. And this culture of self and arrogance and public image and relative truth and self-expression and self-actualization and virtue signaling was creeping into the Corinthian church, just like it's trying to do today. And division was the result of that. Not, not over dogma or doctrine, but over personal, personal taste, opinion, personality, and preference. And the church in Corinth was on the brink of crumbling or, or imploding because all this was uh, coming in on them. So what is the answer? How does a church uh, serve, survive this cultural dilemma of personalities and propaganda and preferences and entertainment and all of that? Well, that's why Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. So let's turn 1 Corinthians chapter 1 again, verse 10, and find out. Verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So how does a church survive this type of a culture? Be united. Paul's appeal to be united is based on, uh, on the basis of their familial relationship. Brothers and sisters, he says. Those siblings often quibble and squabble. I mean, I had siblings too, right? All through life. You squibble and squabble, you do all that stuff, but there's a strong bond that keeps them together. Blood, right? They are born of the same parents. As God's covenant people, through belief in the shed blood of Jesus, we too are born into a new family with the same parent, our Heavenly Father. And the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus is the bond that keeps us together. It's what makes us one big family. And Paul appeals to the Corinthian church based on their close familial relationship, bound by the blood of Jesus and under the loving care of our Heavenly Father. And Paul appeals to them on the basis also of a person. So Paul's appeal is on the basis of the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the tenth time that Jesus has been named in the first ten verses. I'm going to read through here. I want you to get the, the, the heaviness of this when Paul writes this letter. I want you, I'm going to start in verse 1. I'm going to read through it. Hear how many times Jesus' name is mentioned. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and her brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that's in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, 
called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that has been given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as a testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a lot of times he names Jesus in there. Ten times. And we read it like that and we focus our attention on the name of Jesus. You can see how noticeable this is. And Paul does this on purpose. To reiterate and to rehearse and to remind the Corinthian church of one singular thing. They belong to Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus is the one who saved them. Jesus' blood is what binds them together. Jesus sanctified them, set them apart. He's the one upon whom they call. Jesus is their Lord. And so, the Lord Jesus Christ is the one they're to follow. He is what unites them. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I also want you to notice it's the sixth time that the word Lord is used in reference to Jesus in the first 10 verses. That's a lot of times in 10 verses if you, if you do any kind of study of the scriptures. So what is Paul inferring? He's inferring that they are the Lord Jesus Christ community, bound together through the blood of Jesus, through the crucifixion of Jesus. And they were a gospel-centered community. And he's also inferring that Jesus' lordship is the grounds of their unity. Jesus is their Lord and ours. Jesus graciously shed his blood so we could be forgiven and united into the benevolent family of God. And the response to this lavishly gracious gift, this undeserved privilege that we receive through faith, is to loyally follow Jesus and obey him as our master, as our Lord. A master which draws us to himself and unites us to one another. <clears throat> the following story is recounted in Steve Brown's book, A Scandalous Freedom. During the Civil War era, there was a northerner that went to a slave market. And there he noted a, a young, beautiful African-American woman who was being auctioned off to the highest bidder. He bid on her and he won. He could see uh, the anger in the young woman's eyes and could imagine what she was thinking. Another white man will buy me, use me, and discard me, right? As the man walked off with his property, he turned to the woman and said, You're free. Yeah, what does that mean? She replied. It means you're free. Does it mean I can do whatever I want, or can I, I can say whatever I want to say? He replied, smiling. It means you can say whatever you want to say. Does it mean, she asked incredulously, that I can be whatever I want to be? Yes, you can be whatever you want to be. Does it mean, the young woman said hesitantly, that I can go wherever I want to go? Yes, it means you are free, and you can go wherever you want to go. And then the woman, with tears welling in her eyes, said, I think I'll go with you. This is a story as an example of redemption. God graciously paid the price for us to go free through the blood of Jesus. We didn't deserve it. We didn't merit it. We're like that woman standing on the auction block. We have no hope, right? And we talked about this last week, that the proper response to God's lavish, free grace, lavished on us, is not to walk away. 
God's lavish, undeserved grace upon us is for the sake of entering into a relationship with us. And the proper response, the intended response, the spiritually appropriate response is, where else could I find such a benevolent, gracious, and loving master? You purchased my redemption, thus you are my Lord, and I will freely go with you. Once we are brought into God's family by grace through faith, once we will say, I will go with you, then there's relational responsibilities that that come with being part of God's family. God always does that with us. And Paul gives us one of those responsibilities in his appeal. So we're joined together, and because we are joined together uh, by God's grace into his family, we are responsible to, as the ESV puts it, agree. The ESV says, all of us are to agree. The King James Version translates the phrase literally, which, which says that you all speak the same thing. And when we think of speaking the same thing, we, we assume two things, right? We assume two things without even really thinking about it, but common language. So we cannot speak the same thing if, if one of us is speaking French and the other is speaking Spanish and someone else is speaking English. It, it assumes common language if we're going to say the same thing. It also assumes common meaning or common definition to the words we're using. Speaking the same thing doesn't just mean that we're speaking the same language. The meaning and understanding behind the words uh, that we are saying must be the same. Otherwise, uh, communica- we're communicating something differently. There would be confusion. For instance, when I can say duck, but what does that mean? Right? Am I, am I, do I see a bird in the sky? Or am I commanding you to lower your head so you don't uh, get decapitated? Right? Um, Saying the same thing requires the same language, and it also requires the same meaning and common understanding. What could Paul possibly mean by speak the same thing? Was, uh, were they supposed to memorize a saying in Greek and then repeat it in unison? And I don't think that's what he's getting at here. Um, how many of you have ever played with Legos? Come on, raise a hand, even you adults. All right, very good. Um, you know, those plastic little bricks that fit together. Uh, in such a way that you can build all those really cool things, buildings and ships and all that stuff, right? There are also those little pieces that you, if you left on the floor, you step on at night and, you know, you scream in pain because it hurts your foot. Um, why do I bring up Legos right now, all right? Because I like Legos. Um, the Greek word translated as speak here is the word Lego in Greek. And according to the Bible dictionary I used which is an old one, Zodiades, the, the word lego means to speak by linking and knitting together in connected discourse the inward thoughts and feelings of the mind. That's an interesting uh, definition, right? So lego means, in Greek, to speak by linking and knitting together in connected discourse the inward thoughts and feelings of the mind. Now, did the inventor of legos know the meaning of the word when they named their product? I have no idea. Could be. That's not the point. Paul wants all of them to lego the same thing. He wants them to link their thoughts and words together into the same utterance of speech. In other words, to agree upon something. And Paul also uses the word lego in verse 12, where he is rehearsing what people are saying. He says, each one of you says, or lego, I follow Paul, or I follow Peter. So there was an issue. Corinthians were not saying the same thing. Okay? And the audible external words that they were speaking were coming from the inward silent thoughts of the heart and mind. Neither the audible external nor the silent internal were in harmony. 
The problem was that their minds and their hearts, their words and speech were divided and fractured. They were not thinking the same thing, and thus they were not saying the same thing. They were saying that they were all following somebody different. And it's a clear sign of division. And Paul says that one way to combat division is to have a common language regarding Jesus Christ. That he is our God, our Lord, and our leader. We follow Jesus. And so Paul starts by saying, I appeal to you by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you all say the same thing and that you have no division among you. And so the next part of his appeal is that they don't allow division among themselves. The, the word for division is schisma, and it means precisely that, schism, faction, dissension. I used to build chimneys with my father-in-law. When you build a chimney or a wall or something like that with brick or stone, it's very important that every joint is filled completely with mortar. Mortar is the glue that binds a bricks together. And when fully cured, bricks and mortar are strong and solid, right? Impervious to water, to wind or fire. And because they are unified and held together and strengthened by a product, that was meant to hold brick and stone together permanently, they stay, all right? However, if you forget to fill in a mortar joint with mortar and you leave a crack between two bricks, water or air or critters or fire can get into that joint and cause a major problem. In the winter, water then gets into that open joint here in Wisconsin. It will freeze, it will expand, and when it expands, the frozen water has the ability to make that joint into a fracture or a schism, a large crack, a break that extends down the entire structure. A structure then becomes divided, and when it's divided, it's unstable, it is harmful, it's prone to decay and deterioration, it will eventually crumble. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 and following, Paul uses the language of building with brick and mortar to describe the church. I want you to listen to this. Just sit back and listen. And he says this, So then you are no longer strangers or aliens, you know, all over, but you are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the metaphor that Paul is using is that each one of us is like a stone or a brick, right? And that God's Spirit is taking each one of us and joining us together as a unified whole into the dwelling place of God, the temple of God. We collectively are the temple of God. That's incredible. And the gospel truth of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and return is the foundation. It's the mortar that holds us together in a permanent bond. With a physical structure, when the mortar is diluted or it's non-existent or it's compromised, the structure will fall. And Paul knows that this can happen to church communities as well. When, when the mortar of the gospel and the crucified Jesus Christ is diluted or it's non-existent or it's compromised, the structure, the church, will fall. And so Paul makes his appeal to the church on the basis of the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, he says, don't have divisions among you. Don't leave a crack in there. Do not allow schisms or fractures among you, 
he says. And he says this because there was the divide in the church at Corinth. They had a schism, and the divide was growing, and it was a divide over whom they were following. And Paul combats the problem of division and schism from two different angles or two different vantage points. There's internal and external. And he has just talked about the external. Paul told them to begin by saying verbally outside the same thing, right? They needed to, be, to audibly get their voices and their words together so that they were saying in unison what was important. Some people, needed, need, some people in, in general in life, they need to begin with action. I don't know how many of you are like that. Um, and then the hearts follow, right? Some people, so Paul appeals to this group first, right? Kind of like someone who has to just eat a salad, first, and then later on they begin to like it, or like some people who need to begin to attend church first before they will place their faith in Jesus. Some of us need to do actions before our hearts follow. But then there's others who require a heart to change first, and then their actions follow. And so Paul now turns inwardly, and he says that you be perfectly united, verse 10. And the word for united in the ESV, or perfectly joined in the KJV, is Katartizo, I think that's right, that's Greek. It means to complete thoroughly, to make perfect, to restore completely. The word is used in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. By faith we understand that the worlds were set in order, or katartizo, at God's command. You also see it in Mark chapter 1, verse 19. Going a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, were in the boat mending, katartizo, their nets. And so, in the physical world, when, when there was a crack or a, in a wall or a fracture in a structure or a rend in a garment or, as in Genesis, there was no form and everything was void, there is a necessity for someone to set things in order, to mend what was ripped, to restore what was broken, to perfectly unite what was divided. And Paul was appealing to the fractured and divided church that they be completely restored, perfectly joined together as they should be. And this portion of his appeal is directed to the heart and mind, to the internal. So be perfectly united in the same mind, same understanding, same governing thought, same intellect. How do individuals come to have the same mindset or understanding or intellect, right? Seems impossible these days. Uh, Answer, our minds need to be set upon the same truth. We view life through the lens of the truth. And Paul is encouraging them to set their minds around the truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul is reminding them of one thing that they can agree on, the one thing that cemented them together in the first place, the one thing that mortars them as individuals, individual bricks into the temple of God, the crucifixion and resurrection and the return of Jesus Christ. Paul is not assuming that they will have the same thought on everything or come to the same conclusion on every controversial issue in their church uh, or in their culture. What Paul is doing is he is appealing to them to have the same mindset regarding the fact that God saved them through their belief in the good news of the crucified and risen Jesus. And then God placed them into his family by grace through the power of the Holy Spirit, giving them a new identity. The good news of Jesus is what cements us together. However, Paul doesn't just appeal to them to have the same mindset focused on a singular truth of Jesus crucified. He also appeals to them to have the same judgment. All right, He says, be perfectly united in the same judgment. 
Judgment is same determination, same opinion, same resolve or purpose. So Paul is encouraging them to have the same opinion or determination or purpose from having minds that are focused on the gospel of Jesus. You see, mindset determines purpose. A mindset upon chocolate chip cookies will eventually purpose to eat a chocolate chip cookie. Right? Amen. I heard one. <laughs> a mindset on coffee, I know, you're thinking about after service, will resolve to drink coffee. A mindset on a particular ideology will determine to follow and become more and more like that ideology. In the same way, a mindset upon the crucified and risen Jesus will determine to be more like Jesus. To be united in the same judgment or purpose or resolve is a powerful thing. Paul knows that. God knows that. And that is why God gave us something to be united around his son, Jesus Christ. And Paul reminded them of the gift of grace that united them together, Jesus Christ crucified. And Paul's encouraging them to make decisions determinations based on that singular truth. Christ crucified, buried, risen, and coming again. And Paul is appealing them to be intent upon one purpose, living obediently as God's covenant community under the grace and love of Jesus as expressed in his death, burial, resurrection, and promised coming again. So what would it look like for the Corinthian church to all say the same thing and not have schisms among them, but that they were perfectly united with the same mindset, focused upon the death, burial, resurrection, and coming of Jesus, and thus making their determinations and their decisions from that mindset, what would that look like? It would sound like, first, we follow Jesus. Jesus was crucified for us, the message of the cross. Our wisdom and our knowledge comes from Jesus. We are completely dependent upon him. And because we follow Jesus Christ our Lord and we call upon his name, we determine to testify of his character. We purpose to be obediently, to obediently love one another as he has loved us. We purpose to point everyone to Jesus as he called us to do. And it would look like everyone fellowshipping together in harmony the rich knit together with the poor, the old mortared together with the young, every sick and broken individual being mended together through praising Jesus and worshiping him as one. But this wasn't happening in Corinth. Here's what was happening. Verse 11, we're at our second point, the report that Paul received. My first point was the longest. I was trying to go for Stuart Briscoe's a pattern, but I'm going to make it. So here we go. Verse 11. It has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paulo, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. So Paul receives a report from Chloe's family. There's quarreling, there's strife, there's debate, there's contention. The word included, uh, the, the word that he received included temper flare-ups, ostracizing others, passionately promoting one personality that he or she thought was superior. They had formed personal allegiances to human leaders. Not good. They were audibly arguing and debating about whose leader was better, whose leader was more eloquent, whose leader was more engaging, whose leader was more culturally relevant. Again, not good. I follow fill in the blank, right? I want you to notice this was not a doctrinal schism. This was a personality-driven fracturing of the church. Unless we think it was only back then, 
were mistaken. Some say, I follow John Calvin. Others will say, I follow Martin Luther. Some will say, I follow Jacob Arminius. Others say, I follow the Baptists. Others, I'm the Presbyterians. Others, I won't follow that preacher, but I will follow that guy or that preacher. But how did Corinth get to this point? How did they get so divided over personalities and leaders? Here's my theory. In Acts chapter 19, verse 11, you don't have to turn there, but in that passage, we learn that Apollos spent time in Corinth. Uh, Luke describes Apollos as a skilled uh, speaker. He was eloquent. He was competent in the scriptures. He was confident and he was persuasive. That was Apollos. And then Paul describes his own style very differently. In 1 Corinthians 2.3, we'll read in a couple weeks, Paul says that he was weak and he was fearful and he was, he was uh, trembling. He was not an eloquent or wise public speaker. Paul, Paul must not have been very confident in his ability to stand in front of people. And though very different, they were brothers in Christ. And Paul actually encouraged Apollos, because he was such a gifted speaker, to go to Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 12, Paul's like, go to Corinth and speak. Talk to them about Jesus. And Paul mentions Peter also, or Cephas, as in this passage, in 1 Corinthians 9, 5. And so Peter most likely also went to Corinth and was speaking uh, to the church, and he spoke well. And so instead of uh, unfortunately, instead of the Corinthians seeing all of these guys as different apostles of the same Jesus, planting and watering the souls of the congregation, the congregation slipped into viewing them as they would the traveling sophist speakers, right? And they began to align themselves with one or the other based on how eloquent, how convincing, how wise, how fluent, how entertaining they thought that their speaking ability was. And perhaps some of the folks came to know Christ under one of the different preachers and then they were baptized by them. And that's why Paul goes into that. And then in their immaturity, the congregation began to divide into different camps, different cliques around who they thought was the better apostle, the better teacher, who was wiser, who was more eloquent, who had more knowledge, who met their needs, who listened to them, who thought they cared more about them. And then those cliques got more and more segregated. And they pulled further and further apart. They met in separate rooms or in separate homes for worship. And this was happening in in Corinth. They ate different meals together. They only talked to the ones who they thought or that thought like them. They they only fellowshiped with their clique instead of learning about the needs of the rest of the church and seeing, seeing everyone through the eyes of love, right? And they spoke over one another and they were when they were together. There was quarreling and yelling and fighting broke out. You might say, wait, in a church? Really? People would really fight and quarrel and yell and belittle and condemn and gossip and malign one another in a church? Yep. When something other than the gospel of Jesus crucified and resurrected becomes the preoccupation, the danger is always there. They were so busy championing their hero, aligning with the apostle that said it just so, following the preacher who spoke to their heart, praising the teacher that understood them and listened to them, that they forgot that they were supposed to be aligning with Jesus Christ, championing Jesus as their king, praising Jesus, following Jesus together as he designed. And what do you think Paul would have to say about that? Well, he did have something to say, and here's his response. Verse 13, we're at a third point. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? 
I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did not baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The response to that, the gospel. Is Christ divided? The obvious answer is no. Was Paul crucified for you? The obvious answer again is no. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Again, the answer is no. These were rhetorical questions meant to point us in one direction. The answer to all those, Jesus. Jesus was crucified for you. Jesus, you were baptized in Jesus' name. Jesus is not divided. He and the Father are one. The problem was that because of these divisions and schisms in the Corinthian church, the church's testimony conveyed otherwise. Anyone looking in from the outside would think that Jesus Christ and his message caused division and anger and quarreling and arrogance. And so again, is Christ divided, he says? Absolutely not. But the Corinthian church were living as if he was. Their testimony said otherwise. Ouch. And Paul goes on a slight tangent about who he baptized. His point was simply that he is glad that he didn't baptize anyone other than a couple that he did. He didn't want people following him and getting mixed up uh, with that. And after the tangent, Paul begins a longer discourse that we will get into next week when we come back. But the point of this paragraph and the point of verse 17 is this. The response to the vision is the gospel. We fill in the cracks with the mortar of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and return. We always go back to the gospel of grace and the proper response of gratitude to God's grace. You receive the grace of God through Jesus Christ. As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. You are following the wrong person if you're following Paul or Apollos or Peter or Jason or Tim or anyone else. We follow Jesus. And Paul says, Christ sent me to preach the gospel. Oh, Corinthians, I didn't come like the sophist trying to win your approval or bring you over to my side or make money or gain a following. No, Jesus sent me. And he did not send me to create division or, or over baptisms. No, he sent me to preach the good news of Jesus, the gospel, the crucifixion of Jesus, the death, burial, and resurrection, and imminent return of Jesus for us. And Jesus did not use eloquent words or words of incredible wisdom. He didn't send me to entertain you. He simply sent me with the good news of Jesus. Because here's the deal, O Corinthians, the cross of Jesus is what has power. The crucifixion of Jesus is what is eloquent. The resurrection of Jesus is God's wisdom. The return of Jesus will be with power. Follow him. His blood is what unites you to the Father. His gospel is what mortars you together as the temple of God. You know what? It's so easy to do, to do this. It's so easy to lose our focus and our attention off of Jesus and turn our eyes upon something else. It's easy to break into factions over frivolous things because we get focused on what's in front of our eyes. We can easily become so self-centered that we don't see Jesus. We get distracted. What's the remedy? We need to constantly be pointed back to the gospel of Jesus Christ so that we maintain our gospel-centered community. 
The enemy of the church, the enemy of the church, which is Satan, by the way, um, wants to divide churches. He wants divided churches. He wants church schisms. He wants church cliques and church factions. Why? Because these divisions negatively affect the church's testimony about Jesus. When we divide, we harm the witness of Jesus. How many people do you know that have not only left the church, and I'm not just talking this church, but the church in general, but have left the faith because they saw Christians fighting worse than, say, their lost co-workers? How many people have left the faith because their celebrity speaker fell? They were following a person and not Jesus. How many people have left the faith because the church didn't meet their needs? FYI, the church doesn't exist to meet your needs. The church exists to glorify God and to fill his purposes on the earth. And as the people of God, born again into, God, into the Father's family by blood, the blood of Jesus Christ, we have no excuse for being separated by anything. Be that politics or social status or ethnicity or book authors or podcasters or celebrity speakers or line of work or opinions or education or skills or anything else. As in the example that Paul described here with I follow Paul or I follow Apollos, Paul warns against people dividing and quarreling with others over Christian authors and Christian speakers. That person said this in his book. I don't agree with how that guy explains his doctrine. We shouldn't read his stuff. And the other person will see it just the opposite. He'll prefer someone else. And it's the same thing that was going on in Corinth. And Paul is saying that just because someone may like another Christian author or a preacher that you don't like, it doesn't mean that you can divide over it. Can't divide over it. We don't divide over preferences. Or if someone likes a Christian preacher that you disagree with, it doesn't give you the right to excuse, uh, or an excuse to write that person off or to quarrel or gossip or malign. Remember what binds you together. It isn't the authors you read or don't read. It, it isn't the political party you align with. It isn't the version of the Bible that you read. It isn't the type of car that you drive. It isn't the stores that you shop at. It isn't the type of food that you eat. It isn't the form of education you place your children in. It isn't the color of your skin. It isn't your family of origin. It isn't the common enemy. It isn't your nationality. What binds us together is the gospel of Jesus Christ, period. And what binds us together is the truth that when none of us deserved it, none of us, Jesus was sent from God to come to earth and die for our sins. And then he was buried for our transgressions, raised for our justification. He will come again and we will be glorified with him forever. So don't gather into cliques around high-profile personalities or political convictions or musical taste or preferences for certain church programs or theological catchphrases or woke terminologies or bestseller books. Gathering into cliques around these things will slowly but surely undermine the unity of our community. Like freezing water in a small crack in the mortar, these human associations will cause big schisms and big problems. And most tragically, we lose our testimony, the witness that Jesus saves and that he is not divided. By all means, talk about your differences in Christ-like love. Humbly seek to learn from one another. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. We will not be in agreement on everything. That's good and healthy to have differing perspectives and debates and dialogues on all kinds of different topics. But when we let pride get in the way and we think, I'm the only one who's right here, then trouble is around the corner. Personal preferences must be placed aside for the greater and eternal purpose of participating in a community that's centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ and exists to give him glory. 
So if you find yourself pulling away from the broader body and there's a schism beginning to form, I appeal to you, let there be no division among you. If you don't talk to certain people anymore and a fracture is beginning to develop, I appeal to you, be united in the same mind and in the same purpose. Paul's appealing to us here at KMCC. This is an important moment for us at KMCC in the stage that we're in. We are in a critical time. Kelly and I have been here for three years. Tim and Gabby just uh, recently joined us. The honeymoon is over. The family's growing. The demographic of our community is changing. Adjustment is necessary. And the dangers that we get distracted by our own needs and preoccupied with our own desires and our own agendas and we lose focus of Jesus, the one who brought us together in the first place. If the Spirit of God is working in your heart, I appeal to you to listen to his word this morning. First, begin by saying the same thing. Jesus is the one we follow. His death, burial, resurrection, return is what unites me with everyone else in this family. Second, as Paul says in Ephesians, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Be eager to maintain it. That's on us. Make it your goal to be perfectly joined together in the same mindset and the same purpose. Personalities and programs and preachers and preferences are not what unite us. It's Jesus. To maintain unity, keep short accounts with people, get to know those who may be on the fringe, listen to one another. Third, be united in the same judgment and the same purpose. And that purpose being to glorify God by loving him with all that you are and loving others as yourself. And fourth, pray for the unity of the church. As Jesus did. In John chapter 17, Jesus prayed, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be all one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would continue to make this a reality here at KMCC. We are unified because of Jesus. We are family because you are our Father and Jesus' blood runs through our veins. I ask that you would answer Jesus' prayer to you for us right here in this congregation in the cornfield. Make us one. Unite our hearts around the gospel of Jesus. Give us each a desire to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Root out self-centeredness or arrogance. May we as your people not be distracted by personalities or popularity or any of that, but may we be enamored with Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And he is worthy. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.